Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Will Hobbs, Head of UK Multi-Asset Wealth, Karen Ward, Chief Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, and Nick Kirridge, Co-Head of the Global Value Team at Schroders, talk about the investment outlook for 2024 including what we can expect from AI, US productivity, and how much geopolitical risk has been priced into the markets. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I say another, but this is more than another. It's a very special edition. This is where we get to the biggest names in the city and we look back on what we can describe as a turbulent year. We describe every year as turbulent year, can't we? But it's getting a bit of a bit of an overused word. Um, and have a look forward to 2024 and hopefully shine, get these two experts to shine a little light on much needed light on the road uh, road ahead and, and as well as some things to think about. So geopolitics, central bankers, technological breakthroughs, antitrust, Chinese spy balloons, that kind of thing. Let's start with 2023. So is there, Karen, I'm going to start with you. Mm. Is there a word or a phrase that sums up 23 for you? What was your experience of 23 from a markets perspective? I think we can look at it from lots of different ones. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, narrowing down to that. Um, Surprising. I mean, this was the year that every economist predicted a recession, pretty much. And it was the recession that didn't happen. So I think economists' reputations haven't got better this year. They've probably got even worse than weather forecasters now. Hello, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So why? I mean, that's the big question I guess we've all been grappling with over the course of the year. How did these economies prove so resilient? Is it that interest rates don't hurt anymore? Because, of course, that's why everyone did predict a recession. The central banks had the most aggressive, synchronised tightening cycle we'd ever seen. And what usually happens after that is economies go into recession. That's what gets rid of the inflation. And that's how the cycle ends. And then inflation goes away, they ease and off we go again. But that recession didn't happen. So as I say, is it that interest rates don't hurt anymore? Are our economies just fundamentally healthier, more resilient? Is there something changed in the structure of our debt that means interest rates don't hurt? Or is it that those interest rates are going to be reversed just in time Mm. to mean that recession is no longer required? I, as I look to next year and how I've digested this year, I think that on that first question, do interest rates still hurt? I think they do. But I do think economists, central bankers are always plagued by these long and variable lags. Mm -hmm. The lags are longer this time around. Lots of households fix themselves onto low rates. They're feeding through to consumer purses a little bit slower. But we'll start to see more of that bite into next year. And there was all that pent up savings and pent up fun to be had. And so I think that was another source of resilience, particularly in the US. So that, I think, does fade into next year. I think the aspect of the story I I don't really buy, which I think the market is increasingly once again pricing, is this idea that interest rates are going to be, don't need to worry about all that sensitivity stuff anyway, because interest rates are quickly going to be cut in order to promote a re-acceleration. And there'll be no long and variable lags there. Everything will be immediate and it'll be... Absolutely. We're back to Goldilocks happy days. Well, the interesting thing, I mean, you said said there that, you know, interest rate, usually they cause a slowdown. They make saving more attractive than spending. But the US economy seemed to be accelerating for much of this year. And I guess that helps with the setup for stocks. You say, you know, we entered the year very depressed. That 
created a nice low bar for lots of companies to hop over, particularly the Magnificent Seven. Well, I mean, I think that's a point worth making, isn't it? You know, it, optically, the market's been roaring away in the US. Fantastic. Same story we've seen for many years. Fantastic. Yes. Look beneath the surface. Actually, you know, it's a tale of two cities, isn't it? So there's one set of stocks that have extraordinary kind of qualities, barrier to entry, you know, moats, all the rest of it that have been continuing to just move away in a kind of extraordinary fashion. And then underlying that, there's quite anemic performance from a lot of stocks. I mean, we've been, you know, a number of investors in our firm have been having quite a kind of rude time looking at that mid-cap level in the States in terms of some businesses that are coming back to valuations you haven't seen for quite a long period of time and, and potentially an opportunity. And, and it is a kind of very two-tier that. And I wonder whether or not, again, the economy. So there's quite a lot of signs of weakness in different areas. Labour market, very, very strong. You know, a, a bastion. It is a thing we've held up for a long period of time. I mean, who? <laughs> it's very, very hard to interpret that. I think the thing that I thought was interesting uh, about what's just been said was that talk about the misforecasting of recession this year. Mm. Uh, every can, year. <laughs> you, you know, well, or quite. Or, you know, and every year we start with market will do 10% yes. and or... I kind of do wonder a little bit, you know, I saw a thing the other day and, and I'm not a harbinger of doom because I think I'm always optimistic about our ability to kind of push through and businesses ability to adapt and so on and so forth. But there was a thing saying, you know, every hard landing stops, starts with a soft landing. Yes. And 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 so and, and they are a hard thing to do. So over time, I think we will become very, very focused on you know, the labour market. People are myopically focusing on that because there are all the signs of, of kind of, of slowing growth are in other areas and in the broader market. And we really need those seven stocks and the labour market to continue to push through. Otherwise, people may question, you know, how resilient things are. Is there a danger time. in all of this? So, I mean, I, open question. Is there a danger that we've become so conditioned on the idea that interest rates lead to certain things and we've developed these relationships by looking at primarily post-war data, so what in the US, 12, 13 cycles. Is there a danger that we're spending too much time actually looking for a recession and forgetting that actually most of the time, to your point, we muddle through, growth is the norm, not the exception? To what extent, you know, and, and, and sort of trying to encourage investors to a little bit to look beyond almost eternal recession forecast. It's what our industry loves to do, uh, to get attention. <laughs> I mean, it's very, it's very rare, as been said, that this degree of interest rate hiking yes. doesn't result in a recession. It's yes. You can only really pick one where you've had that sort of perfect soft landing in the mid-90s yes. that everybody's currently focused on. Mm. So it, it, I, I still think interest rates bite, yes. but it can take longer. I do think the difference this time around that perhaps there, it, there is only really this realization coming through is we also have to think however about the interplay of monetary and fiscal policy because yes, yes, we've yes. had a decade of austerity and a decade of governments trying to retreat from driving their economies and and so we've sort of forgotten about the potency of fiscal mm. policy whereas i think the pandemic war in ukraine this has acted as this catalyst for governments having a total rethink about the role they play in the economy and fiscal mm. policy you know it's legislated multi-year fiscal expansions on things like infrastructure green transition chips programs i mean i've almost lost track of all the acronyms there are yeah, in the yeah, us yeah. now no, and i do think that's a fiscal policy is very potent mm. and that i think is one of the one of the factors of resilience this year which will persist mm. into next year 
And therefore, it, I think we have to think about the two of them together. I echo that. I think that's exactly right. I think the other thing I'd throw into the mix is, is valuation in terms of, you know, if we, if we think about where we have been with bonds where they were, with interest mm. rates where they were, there's been quite a profound shift in valuations. So suddenly areas like, you know, fixed income, but also kind of real estate starts to look m- more interesting in that regard and, and, and more normal, more reasonable, more interesting valuations mm. from a kind of go forward perspective. And then on equities, we still have very high valuations. And that is not a great position to start when, you, when you're kind of extrapolating forward. But again, come back to what we were saying before, that's a two tier thing. Mm-hmm. So actually, valuations in many cases are becoming a lot more reasonable, look more interesting. But at a high level, we have this kind of nifty 50 phenomena, you know, Magnificent Seven, whichever it is uh, on any given day. So I think that is a thing that is always a backdrop. It's never a driver for the next 12 months worth of returns. Yeah. But it is the setting of the scene that is very, very important for medium term returns. And I think that has shifted very significantly from where we were 18 months, two years ago. Mm-hmm. And there are some threats with regards to sort of the Magnificent Seven. If we start looking into next year, so, you know, we we can assume that the economy will wilt to an unknown degree with regards to interest rates, that there might be a sort of, some sort of slowdown. There's lots of other stuff going on, of course, and you can think of, you know, we can talk about the technology side of things and that, how that's changing and when that might show up. But also in the background is this sort of antitrust story. So with regards to Google very recently this morning, and there's other cases sort of assailing some of these titans. And there seems to be a different perspective on what competition should look like and what's the optimal level. Well, what do you see as the threats for that kind of dominance of those big companies. And I know you're looking at sort of some of the sort of cheaper parts of the market and licking your lips at what sets that off and what changes the the story with regards to growth. I mean, and isn't isn't that what makes it so difficult because it's hard yes. to point to Minsky moments, it's hard yes. to say this is this is the reason. Yes. I, I think what I would say is is that in a period in which quite a lot of people have broadly been making money out of multiple asset classes, the fact that the magnificent seven are very, very profitable and make huge amounts of money, you, you know, and also shareholders benefit from that people are, you know, and passive ETF holders, the S&P 500 influence, everyone's benefiting from it in that regard. It's less of an issue. I think if it became more unbalanced in terms of, you know, the economy did take a downturn, suddenly you have big companies that do make huge amounts of money. And then there's a rearing the head of do they make too much money? Is this oil barons again? Do we need to think about that? Because it seems more unbalanced more broadly, and there is a you know, there's just a turn in policy and in public perception of that. So we're not there and, and, and perhaps we won't get there. But you are starting to see, as you said, you're starting to see the beginnings of rumblings. You know, we saw the EU announcement with Google and the Play Store and so on and so forth. So the signs are there, but yes. maybe this year will be the year, maybe we won't. And I think the message for, for investors, would-be investors and current investors, is uh, just remember a little bit of humility about you know what past performance can tell us. It may be very well that the landscape in front of us, the landscape behind us has been so conducive to these companies, but the landscape in front may not be from a real interest rate, regulatory, antitrust, whatever kind of perspective. Or even just uh, the problem with that I find if you get, this isn't my first tech miracle that I'm uh, (laughs) experiencing. So I do feel when I speak to some of my younger colleagues, I have to say to them, oh, kind of, we've been here before. (laughs) Let's just remember that sometimes things don't play out. Even if you believe in the tech miracle itself, even if you believe AI is going to revolutionize every industry and it's going to remain, you know, fantastically profitable and we're only at the tip of the iceberg, Working out which is the company oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. the eventual yeah. winner is yes. really hard. I yeah. mean, if you go back to, uh, we have this great chart in our Guide to the Markets, which shows if you go back to the 2000s and look at who were the top 10, the last time the market was so concentrated, mm. and who were the top seven names then, 
if you'd have bought Microsoft at that time, you'd have paid 50, time, 50 times earnings, which might have seen a crazy thing to do, but you've made a thousand percent. So it was still in a very good yes, investment. You did okay. If you'd have bought any of the other seven, yes. you'd have you'd have made a lot less than the S&P. Hmm. So picking the final winner yeah, yeah. is... is and Google wasn't even, what was it, founded in 98, wasn't it? I think so it wasn't even really at the party. Exactly. So, and that was the ultimate winner of all of this. So tech, kind of, tech moves too fast. I mean, all of us have got a mini disc player or, you know, something in the wall <laughs> in the cupboard. Exactly. And I keep it there to remind myself how hard this stuff I'm is. You've got to re-gift it to great aunt. That's a lovely, if somewhat painful trip down memory lane, lane for me, I have to say. But I, I think you make a great point there. And it's not just around tech. It's actually about thematics more broadly. So we used to have a slide that looked at the biggest 10 stocks in the world at the start of every decade, yeah, going amazing. back to the last seven decades. Yeah. And many of you will have seen a version of this. And it's at the time they represent where the vast weight of money thought that the next looking forward, the next 10 years we should be, you know, and 10 years ago was China, right? Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, emerging yeah, yeah. markets. And we had broadly, there's almost no way you could have had a worse investment return than emerging markets, maybe emerging market value. But, you know, it's, it's been an appalling place. And as you look back, again, Tech 2000, there are some winners there with some familiar names, but many that actually you don't see today because they don't exist anymore. You know, Ditto going back to Japan in the 90s, you know, it, on and on and on. So I think it's worth sitting back and kind of saying, you know, we, we know what has done well. And in some respects, we know why it has done well. But it is genuinely very, very hard to sustain incredibly high returns over yeah. long periods of time. Yes. And the discipline then is is forcing yourself to step away from the momentum bandwagon and say, well, hang on, US versus other benchmarks are at now pretty much record discounts. Oh, but the US is growing so rapidly and oh, it's all happening in the US. Okay, well, now I'm going to force myself away from those emotions and my inclination of what I want to do to rebalance to the parts of the world which aren't doing so well. For exactly that reason is you don't want all your eggs in the basket that was doing great because the tide changes. You've got to keep a foot in the unfashionable corners, as yes. they say. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, let, that takes us on to elections. Duntech, we've got to do elections, unfortunately. And there are a whole load of them next year. Taiwan is the first one, isn't it, mm. of sort of significance? And then obviously November. So give us some thoughts. How do you guys... Nick, let's start with you. How do you guys think about this stuff? Do you think about it? Do you ignore it altogether and just sort of let it happen? I think I think the danger a little bit with this is actually isn't necessarily in the result. It's that it just sucks up so much bandwidth that nothing yeah, actually yeah. happens. You know, yes. we all we all kind of slightly navel gaze about it's too important to have any other focus than on what will be the result of that. And in the UK, we've got a real particular focus around that because we're actually going through quite a well, I, I believe quite a profound period of potential market reform. So there's suddenly a lot of focus on you know. I, I kind of help along with Schroeder's place on the capital markets industry task force and, you know, a lot of stuff going on there into kind of capital market reform, regulatory reform, trying to make our markets fit for purpose, you know, looking forward rather than just looking backwards. And, and the concern is that you end up with a complete hiatus and that actually it's very hard to do anything because we become so focused on the outcome of the election. Yes. So I think, you know, we just need to remember and, and that it's important the world has to go on. We've got to continue with a lot of this stuff. Don't pause. You know, markets are constantly evolving. So I think we've still got space for some potential very left field. Someone the other day was saying to me, if I had to make any bet, I'd bet that neither of the two, uh, neither Trump nor Biden was on the ticket. <laughs> the next year, which I thought was a wonderful contrarian left field, albeit very unlikely bet um, for various reasons. Yes. So. 
I think, yeah, just kind of keeping focused on the day job as well as yes. understanding that we need to take account of these very important. Yeah, I mean, I sort of have three rules, which I force myself to live by in an election year when it's very hard to not get caught up in the emotions. And the first is polls increasingly do a hopeless job. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's people don't like to answer to the person on the clipboard and say what is truly in their gut. And therefore, they're very hard to predict. Yeah. The second is that what matters is what's legislated for, not what people campaign about. And what we've seen increasingly is you end up with divided results and the ability to legislate for change is is very difficult. So I think that's a, that provides sort of checks and balances on what eventually happens. And then perhaps the third is just the reminder that different parties don't necessarily have the market impact, the, the market direction that you think is going to have. I mean, if you look at the performance of the yeah. S&P through Republican, through Democrat regimes, you can't definitively say, well, when it's blue, it's this result. And when it's red, it's this result. So I think my advice would be don't trade the election, you know, keep focused on a longer term goal and try as much as you can to not get whipsawed around with some emotional inclination that politics will naturally push you to do because actually it's, it's the, for a whole manner of reasons it doesn't usually go the way you think it's going to. Yes. That's a super interesting point because I think you know when you look at the bifurcation of political landscape kind of globally so left and right there's no center ground anymore everyone's moved left and right and so it appears like this is a very kind of philosophically led very different views from different parties but but to your point actually it hasn't actually led to the outcomes you would think that the party that's very right leaning or but you know proclamating in a certain way is going to head a certain way and it'll have a certain impact on the economy it's not clear at all that that's actually what happens people in their policies behave differently and in many respects head to the center ground because we all want strong economies we all want growth we all want there's no there's no one saying well I really want a weak economy I want our economy in the toilet so these kind of things are, I think we have to remember that as we start to become feverish mm. about the, the bifurcation of the outcome and what that might mean. And there's actually a study that shows that in the US to a degree. I think there's a study looking at economic performance under the presidents since Truman, I guess it was. And it should, it, it, on first sort of glance, it looks like the Democrats are much better managers of the economy, but actually most of the difference is explained by oil shocks and mm. exogenous mm factors. So yeah. the message is that the trend rate of the economy tends to chug on no matter who's in power yeah. and not to spend too much time on it. Absolutely. That will be famous last words. <laughs> <to say. laughs> but anyway, look, that, that was brilliant. That was absolutely excellent. Thank you so much, Nick and Karen. That was really, really, really appreciated. And to listeners, please, as usual, get in touch with any questions, disagreements and the rest. And we shall speak to you very shortly. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.